Luke chapter 5, verses 33 through 38. And they said to him, The disciples of John fast often and offer prayers, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees. But yours eat and drink. And Jesus said to them, Can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. He also told them a parable. No one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he will tear the new, and the piece from the new will not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins, and it will be spilled, and the skins will be destroyed. But new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, family of God. I'd like to invite you to bow your head with me one more time and quiet our hearts before the word of God. And would you just join me in praying that the Holy Spirit will speak to each of us this morning? Our Father in heaven, we thank you that you have already been with us. You woke us up this morning. You brought us here today. Your love is new every morning and your grace never fails us. And we want to ask for the help of your Holy Spirit right now. We humble ourselves before you as your children and say we need to be instructed by your word. So would you help me to speak with clarity the things that you want me to say? And would you help all of us to hear your word in a fresh way? Give us minds to pay attention and understand and remember Give us hearts that are moldable. Lord, I pray that after this time together that we would see you more clearly. That we would know you in truth. That we would trust you more. And more deeply internalize the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Our scripture today tells us about a conversation between Jesus and some religious leaders that happened in the middle of a feast. And this is a continuation of the story from Luke chapter 5 that we read about last week. Pastor Jared preached to us last week, and if you weren't here, I'll just briefly recap that Jesus shocked everybody by calling a man named Levi, who is a tax collector and a notorious sinner, to join Jesus' bands of disciples. Levi was excited by this. He was so moved by the love of Jesus that saw him and cared for him and called him into the community of disciples that he very quickly threw a party for Jesus. He had a big feast. And if you've got your Bible, you can glance back up. These verses aren't in your bulletin, but Luke chapter 5, verses 29 through 30, I want to read them again because they're very relevant for what we're talking about today. We're actually picking up mid-story. We read half of the story last week and half of it this week. Verse 29 said this, and Levi, that's the tax collector who just recently started following Jesus. Levi made him a great feast. Now, those are going to be important words for us. Everybody say a great feast. And Levi made him a great feast in his house. And there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with him. 
And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Levi the sinner has his life interrupted by the love of Jesus. He's so excited that he throws a feast. Some religious leaders called the Pharisees and the scribes are offended by this. They're angry about Jesus feasting with Levi and his friends. Jesus immediately responds by telling him that he's the soul doctor who came for sick people. He didn't come for people who already have it all together. But they're not satisfied, so they keep complaining. And that's where our text picks up in verse 33. This is what's in your bulletin. Look again at verse 33. And they said to him, this is those Pharisees and scribes, religious leaders, talking to Jesus. They said to him, the disciples of John fast. Now, you might circle that word fast. That's our other key word. Today, we're talking about feasting and fasting. So everybody say fast. The disciples of John fast and offer prayers. And so do the disciples of the Pharisees. But yours eat and drink. The Pharisees and the scribes are angry because Jesus and his disciples are feasting when the Pharisees think that they ought to be fasting. We're talking about feasting and fasting today. And to make matters worse from the Pharisees perspective, not only are Jesus and his disciples feasting, but they're feasting with People that they think are really bad sinners. And to an even greater extent than in our culture, it was the case in this culture that to eat a meal with somebody was to enter into fellowship, to enter into a relationship with them as as equals. It was a really significant thing to do. So according to the Pharisees, what Jesus and his disciples are doing by feasting with a lot of sinners is exactly the sort of Moral recklessness and self-indulgence that is stopping God from sending the Messiah to save God's people. Now, the irony here, of course, is that Jesus is the Messiah who has come to save God's people. And the Pharisees, for all of their zeal, are so spiritually confused that they're missing it. Now, Jesus is going to respond to this criticism in our passage very graciously as The Gospel of Luke continues, we'll see that the confrontation between Jesus and these religious leaders is going to get more and more heated. And Jesus is going to be, at times, very firm with them. But at this point, he's very calm, he's very gracious, and he takes their criticism as an opportunity to teach both his disciples and the Pharisees and everybody who's listening. And he's going to teach them some important truths about the nature of God's kingdom by using a series of Metaphors and parables. He's going to talk about a wedding. He's going to talk about a patch. He's going to talk about wineskins. This wedding, this patch, and these wineskins are all here to teach us about the nature of God and God's kingdom. But before we get into the details of thinking about Jesus' response, I want to step back for a second. Because I think to really grasp the message of this story, we need to pause And just reflect on what's really happening here. The Pharisees are some of the most respected Bible-believing, Bible-teaching religious leaders of their time. And they are reacting with strong anger and resistance to the love of God. 
That's something that should cause us to pause and think. To help us put this in perspective, I want to ask you to flip to a different passage of Scripture with me. If you've got a Bible, you can keep your finger in Luke chapter 5. We'll come right back. But I'm going to ask you to go to 1 John chapter 4. It's a beautiful passage of Scripture, one of my favorites. And a little over a year ago, some of us spent some time digging into this. But I just want to flip to 1 John chapter 4 for a second to look at a few phrases from verses 8 and 9. That I want us to think about as we think about what's happening in Luke 5. 1 John chapter 4, if you get there, I want to read to you the last three words of verse 8. Famous statement right here. Verse 8 ends with these three words. God is love. Everybody say, God is love. This is a very powerful and important biblical statement about the nature and the character of God. It tells us something about who God is as the Holy Trinity, the Father loving the Son and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit from all eternity. It tells us something about who God is as Creator. God didn't create because He was lonely or because He needed us. He created as a free expression of His love. It tells us something about who God is as Savior and Redeemer who loved us enough to come to us in the midst of our sin and brokenness and rescue us. Everybody say, God is love. But if we keep reading into verse 9, it explains to us this This statement is beautiful and it's good, but if we really want to know what it means, we need to look at Jesus, who is the revelation of God's love. Verse 9 says this, In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent His own Son into the world so that we might live through Him. God is love. But when we hear the word love, we might think of all sorts of things that may or may not be true. The love of God in the Bible is a powerful thing. It's a holy thing. It's a thing that reaches out to us where we are and heals us, but not usually by making us comfortable. The love of God asks us to change. The love of God transforms us. It's a powerful and a beautiful and a wild love. And the fullest expression of God's love is the person of Jesus, the Son of God, who came... To live and to die and to rise again so that we might have life through Him. Now I spend a few moments dwelling on these verses because I want to come back to Luke 5. So if you kept your finger in your Bible, go back to Luke 5 now. And I want you to understand, here's what's happening. God is love and Jesus is God's love coming near to rescue sinners. Aren't you glad God came to rescue sinners, church family? Sinners like Levi... Sinners like Peter, Andrew, James, and John. Sinners like you and me. And also sinners like the Pharisees, if only they would recognize their need for grace. He is God's love coming to heal and rescue sinners. But the Pharisees are reacting with hostility. And we need to ask why. Now, answering that question fully would require more of a history lesson than we have time to for today. But let me just briefly say, the Pharisees are one of many important religious groups within the Jewish community during this time. And they were deeply devoted to studying the Scripture. They really cared about obeying God. Does that sound like good things, church family? They were zealous. But the Apostle Paul, who will become the greatest Christian missionary, was a former Pharisee. And when he looks back on his life, he says, I was zealous for God, but I was Deeply spiritually confused. My zeal was not according to knowledge. And this 
group, the Pharisees, like most of the Jewish groups at this time, they were really defined by their understanding of why and wh- why the, the Messiah had not come. Okay, the the people of Israel were waiting for God to send a savior that they called the Messiah, the king who was foretold by the ancient prophets. And they all had different ideas about when he would come and what it would be like and so on. But the view of the Pharisees was this. God has not come because we're too sinful. We're too impure. And if God's people would just get our act together and be more faithful to keep the law of the Lord, then Messiah would come and rescue us. And not only were they very conscientious about obeying all the commandments of the Torah, but they had developed an elaborate system of traditions trying to make clear and explicit everything that was not clear and explicit in the Mosaic law. And it was it was really intense. There was a lot of commandments and they deeply cared about religious discipline and ritual purity. They cared a lot about those two things. They were committed to it. They were devoted. They were disciplined. But if we dig deeper, it appears to be the case that there's something deeply wrong with their concept of God. Jesus is going to make this clear in the Gospels and his interactions with the Pharisees. Because it seems that they have a concept of God, that they see him as the Holy Lord who is powerful and just. Which, let's do a pop quiz. Church, is God holy? Is he the Lord? Is he powerful and just? So that's all right. But it seems that what's missing is a deep understanding of the grace and love of God. They didn't understand that. Consequently, in practice, their spirituality is really about trying to get God to be willing to rescue them. We're not good enough, but if we if we the people would perform well enough, then God would be willing to come rescue us. Another way to say this is it really becomes. An attempt to manipulate an unwilling God. If we were good enough, then God would accept us. And I'm not saying this because I'm trying to be harsh towards the Pharisees. Actually, what I want you to recognize is that the Pharisees' mistake is very familiar. I would say that probably most human religion and probably most human talk about spiritual discipline is an attempt to manipulate God to be willing to rescue us and help us. That's what religion means for a lot of people. And probably if we're really real and honest and we examine ourselves, a lot of us here believe in a holy, just God, but sometimes we struggle to believe that he loves us. Anybody want to testify that sometimes we struggle with that? And if we're struggling to believe that God loves us, sometimes there might be really good things that we do, but we're doing them for confused reasons that get us all tied up in knots. Okay. Let's do another pop quiz. You guys are getting a hundred so far, so we'll just build on this momentum, okay? Is it a good idea to build our uh, to read our Bible? Okay. Does reading your Bible cause God to love you? Okay. You're, you're still doing good, family. Is it a good idea to come to church? Yes. Is God waiting on you showing up at church to start loving you? No. So we're all saying it right here. But now let's get really real. Do you kind of feel like God doesn't love you when you don't read your Bible and go to church sometimes? Okay. 
So you understand what I'm saying here is that this pharisaical mistake is something that any of us can easily get sucked into. But here's the thing. We become like what we worship. So if we have a view of God who's really a God of holiness and justice, but not of love and grace, who needs us to do enough good stuff to convince him to help us, then we're going to tend to become harsh and judgmental like our God is, our false God. Which is what was happening to the Pharisees and had been happening for a really long time. And what we see in the Gospels is that Jesus shows us that God is very different than what the Pharisees had in mind. And church family, God is much better than what we usually have in mind. Even if we're Christians who believe the gospel, our concept of God is always not yet adequate to who he really is. Amen, church? Have you found that on your spiritual journey you keep finding that God is better than you thought he was? Well, the thing is, you haven't arrived yet. We've got more learning to do. He's more gracious, he's more loving than what we've learned. And what Jesus shows us is a loving God who did not wait for his people to get their act together to come save them. He's a God who came and became flesh and dwelt among us precisely because we never could have got our act together without him. He's a God who takes the initiative and grace and mercy and love to come near. He's the God who says to us, I will gladly heal and forgive you if only you will open your soul to my love. And the implications of this are huge. I'm going to make a statement, church family, that I would really invite you to ponder. All of the Christian life is about learning how to trust God's love and surrender completely to God's love. That's the whole thing. All of Christian life, all of Christian discipleship, all of Christian spirituality is about learning how to trust God's love. And surrender to God's love. There's a lot more that we need to say. But everything is going to be explaining that. When we fully trust God's love. And surrender to God's love. We experience profound peace. And we have the capacity to love others. Joyfully and sacrificially. Some of us think that's just too simple. There's got to be more to it that we might even get triggered by saying, oh, God is love and all of Christian life is learning to trust that God's love. And if we do that, we'll be acting like the Pharisees in this story. But here's the good news. We never could have rescued ourselves, but God loved us while we were still trapped in the depths of our sin before we did anything to try and convince him. To come for us. He loved us enough to come down into the depths of sin and death and take hold of us and rescue us by pure grace. Isn't God awesome? And if you believe that, if you trust that, if you surrender to that, that's going to mean a life of radical obedience and of radical joy and of radical peace. And it will give you a capacity to love other people. All of Christian life is about that. All spiritual disciplines, all spiritual activities are really about practicing trusting God's love, practicing surrender to God's love. And that includes fasting and feasting. You see, I'm bringing this back around. Everybody say fasting. Everybody say feasting. 
The Pharisees misunderstand both fasting and feasting. And that is at the the heart of this particular conflict. But it's rooted in a, a deeper issue about their concept of God. Thus, to understand our passage and what the Pharisees and Jesus are talking about, we need to have a biblical understanding of both fasting and feasting. Now, we don't have time today for me to do like a whole Bible study with you about those two themes. So I'm going to do give you some real quick notes. If you're a note taker, I encourage you to jot this down and ponder it. And as usual, the offer stands that you can uh, take me to coffee and I'll give you the long version of my sermon. OK, that's always available. There's always a long. You may have thought you heard the long version. You always heard the short version. OK, but there is always a long version available for those who desire it. But let me just briefly summarize to you a few things the Bible says about fasting and feasting. If we just study it all out. The Bible teaches there is a place for holy fasting and there is a place for holy feasting. And as we think about these two, first we could say each represents a distinct attitude before God, which is appropriate in different situations. Holy fasting expresses desperate longing for the presence and help of God. Holy fasting expresses desperate longing for the presence and help of God. Whereas holy feasting expresses joyful celebration of the presence and help of God that we've already experienced. So in the Bible, if there's people saying, God, you feel distant. God, I need you to come and help me. They'll express that often through fasting. But when they're saying, God, you've come near, you've helped me. Now they feast. Or we could say it like this. Each of these expresses a different truth about our bodies. Your body is created by God and it's good. But have you noticed that there's also some out of control stuff going on in your body? Now, both of those are important for us to keep in mind. Holy fasting can be a way of prayerfully battling against excessive bodily appetite that can lead us into sin and idolatry. Holy feasting, on the other hand, is a celebration of the goodness of our bodies and their pleasures, which we receive as God's holy gifts. The Apostle Paul will later write about both of those, how he disciplines his body to keep it under control. But as a former Pharisee, he's aware that fasting and ascetic practice can also become a sort of prideful, self-made religion that doesn't get you anywhere. So fasting and feasting, if I've got out of control lust or out of control gluttony or laziness or whatever it may be, fasting can be a helpful spiritual discipline. But then we quickly go to feasting to remind it's not the body that's bad. It's my sin. That's the problem. And for both, I need to learn to trust the grace of God. We could also say it like this. Holy fasting and holy feasting each express different responses to realities about the world we live in. Holy fasting abstaining from food. I should have maybe clarified that from the beginning. Fasting means not eating, okay? Feasting means eating a lot. Holy fasting, then, is associated with lament and repentance and spiritual warfare in this broken world. Whereas holy feasting is associated with gratitude and worship and spiritual victory in the world that is still God's good creation, which he is coming to redeem. And we can maybe sum it up like this. Fasting anticipates the future experience of God's victory, whereas feasting celebrates the present experience of God's victory. In case you didn't write down anything else, I'm going to say that one again so you can feel like a note taker today. If you don't have a pen, just pretend you're writing something. It'll make me feel good, okay? 
Fasting anticipates the future experience of God's victory and presence. Whereas feasting celebrates the present experience of God's victory and God's presence with us. Now, in a second, we're going to come back to the fact that both of those are relevant for the Christian life right now. Church family, is God with us? Yes. And are we still longing for a greater experience of his presence? Yes. Are we already more than conquerors in Christ Jesus? And yet, are we still fighting some battles that we're ready to be done with in the future? So that's why fasting and feasting both can have a place in our individual Christian life and in our collective communal life as a, as a church. But all of this is meant to bring us back to verse 33. You forgot we were talking about Luke 5.33, didn't you? So go back to the text. Go back to your bulletin. Let's look at it again. The disciples of John. This is the Pharisees talking. The disciples of John fast often. And offer prayers. And so do the disciples of the Pharisees. But yours eat and drink. Now let's think about that. When they're talking about the disciples of John, they're talking about John the Baptist. The interesting thing is that the Pharisees did not like John the Baptist. They did not agree with John the Baptist. But from their perspective, at least John the Baptist knew that you should be fasting, not having a big party with a bunch of sinners. Now why did John the Baptist and his disciples fast? Because what they were doing was lamenting sin and calling God's people to repentance in preparation for the coming of Jesus who had not yet publicly revealed himself. So fasting goes with that, right? Fasting is about repentance and it's about looking forward to the future coming of God's victory and God's presence. Why do the Pharisees fast? Well, they've got some of the same themes. They're not entirely wrong. But as we've seen, their fasting is an expression of spiritual zeal Mixed with deep spiritual confusion. They're trying to be good enough to convince God to come establish his kingdom, reward them, and punish their enemies. Which betrays a deep misunderstanding. And that leads to the third issue. Why don't the disciples of Jesus fast? Now that's what we're going to have to ponder. And Jesus' answer, we've got to put it into context. We know that Jesus fasted, didn't he? Forty days in the wilderness being tempted by the devil, fasting, spiritual warfare. We know Jesus assumes his disciples are going to fast. That's why he instructs them about it in places like Matthew 6. But here, what we're learning is that apparently, during his earthly ministry, when Jesus was bodily present with them, the disciples didn't fast, or at least not very much. Not as much as the disciples of John and the Pharisees, which is what leads to this criticism. And, and he responds by talking about a wedding party, a patch and some wineskins. Now, let's look at verse 34. It says, says this. Jesus said to them, can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? Simple quiz. We're doing so great. I'm just going to keep it going. I don't think I've done pop quizzes and sermons before. It's just a new thing that came up today. It is a wedding fasting time or feasting time? You guys, I knew it. You're just doing great. Can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them. And then they will fast in those days. Jesus here is comparing himself to a bridegroom. We don't use that word anymore. It means a groom or a husband, right, who's coming to marry his bride at a wedding. And as we've said, on a basic level, wedding time is feasting time, not fasting time. But we need to think deeply about what is Jesus saying when he says, I'm the bridegroom. You you better believe the Pharisees and scribes were going to think deeply about that question. 
Because they were Bible scholars. They were Bible experts. And Jesus is a Bible teacher and a prophet. And what's interesting to note is that in the Old Testament scriptures, prophets and teachers are not compared to the bridegroom of Israel. Not even the Messiah. In our New Testaments, we hear a lot about the Messiah as the husband of the church, like Ephesians 5, right? But in the Old Testament, that's not the case. In the Old Testament, there is one character who is repeatedly called the bridegroom or the husband of God's people. And guess who it is? It's God. It's the Lord God of Israel. The creator of heavens and the earth who revealed himself at the burning bush. Many times throughout the Old Testament scriptures, the Lord God of Israel says to his people, I am your husband and you are my wife. You, you could go read the whole book of Hosea to reflect on this. But I'll just give you one passage to think about it. Isaiah chapter 62 says this. In verse 4, God is pointing forward to the day in which he's going to redeem Zion after their discipline. And, and, and he says this, you shall no more be termed forsaken and your land shall no more be termed desolate, but you shall be called my delight is in her and your land married for the Lord delights in you and your land shall be married. And then skipping down to the end of verse five, it says, and as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. So the statement of Jesus at a basic level is they can't fast because I'm with them. This is party time. But at a deeper level, what Jesus is suggesting is this. My disciples do not fast right now because I am the God who is love. And I have come to be bodily present with them for a little while to rejoice over them and to teach them and to redeem them so that my covenant of love can be restored with them. That's a profound statement. Verse 35, he says, later they will fast. We could reflect on that for a while, but we can just quickly acknowledge that after his death, resurrection and ascension, Luke will write in the book of Acts that fasting becomes a part of the regular spiritual practice of the Christian community, because like us, they understand their in the in-between, the first coming of Jesus and the second coming of Jesus. So, like the Apostle Paul, they can say, for me to live is Christ, but I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. Living in that tension, there's fasting and feasting. Then, we got to recognize what he's saying to the Pharisees is, I'm the God of love who has come amongst you to heal you. And to rejoice over you. But you're so spiritually blind that, blinded that you can't recognize me. You can't recognize me. If your hearts were open to God, you would have rejoiced that sinners like Levi are repenting. Instead of being mad that I, the Holy One, love him. Jesus drives the point home then with these last two short parables. Verse 36 Jesus told them a parable. No one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he will tear the new and the piece from the new will not match the old. So that's the parable of the patch. And then he says, and no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, 
the new wine will burst the skins and it will be spilled and the skins will be destroyed. But new wine must be put into fresh wineskins and no one after drinking old wine desires new for he says the old is good. Both of these parables are emphasizing that it can sometimes be a problem to try and mix the new with the old. Has anybody ever bought a shirt that fits you perfectly? Then you brought it home and you wore it a few times and you washed it and you dried it and then it never fits you again after that? Okay, so we're all aware of this problem. Cloth shrinks, right? So that's the point of the patch thing. If you got old clothes and you put new fabric on, they get, they get a hole and you patch it with new fabric, wash that thing a few times, the new patch shrinks and now you got a bigger hole. The old didn't go too well with the new, did it? Same thing with the wineskins. New wine over time ferments and expands. And new leather is stretchy. So if you put new wine in a new skin, then the leather stretches as it expands. But that old leather won't stretch. You put new wine in the old, rigid wineskin. Then as the wine expands, you got a big mess and no wine. What's the point here? The point is this. God is doing a new thing in Jesus. God is doing a new thing in Jesus. He's bringing his kingdom to the world, inaugurating his kingdom in a new way. He's establishing a new covenant. This is going to be important to understand. Everybody say new covenant. The prophet Jeremiah foretold that God would bring a new covenant, which is better than the old covenant. A much deeper experience of God. And Jesus, in his Last Supper, is going to say, this is my blood of the covenant. Because on the cross, Jesus is paying the price for our sins. And then he rises from the grave and sends the Holy Spirit to invite us into this new covenant of unbreakable love relationship with God. And changes us from the inside out and forgives all of our sins. God is doing a new thing through Jesus. And the problem is that the Pharisees are trying to fit Jesus into their old way of thinking and living. And he won't fit. They've got a a whole theology and a whole spiritual practice. And they're trying to fit Jesus into that. And he says, if you do that, I'm just going to burst it at the seams. It's all going to break apart. It can't hold me. The challenge then is this. Instead of trying to fit Jesus into your existing life, you need to say, Jesus, make me the kind of person who can hold the new thing you're doing. Make me new. Make me new. And that's a challenge that's still very relevant for us today. Now I want to step back and ask, what what does all this mean for us? What does all this mean for us? And, and I think there's at least three things this can mean for us today. The first thing is, for us today, I think the Holy Spirit is calling each and every one of us to leave behind old ways of thinking and living so that Jesus can do something new, fresh, and radical in our lives. Change can be hard, can't it, church? I think that's the meaning, by the way, of the last verse of your text. Everybody says the old wine is better. And in the case of wine, that's usually true. But I think Jesus is saying something very challenging and sympathetic here. Pharisees, I get it. Change is hard. And Jesus is sympathetic to us, even as he challenges us. Church family, Jesus gets it, okay? Change is hard. 
But there's many of us who, like the Pharisees, we've got an old way of doing life and we're trying to fit Jesus into it. And here's the word. Jesus won't fit. You can't fit Jesus into an old way of thinking and an old way of doing life any more than you can fit him into a twisted vision of the old covenant that the Pharisees were walking around with. Instead, we need to say, Jesus, make me something new. Make me someone new. Once again, this, this is how you become a Christian. Friend, if you're here and you're spiritually searching and you're trying to decide, can I fit Jesus into my life and make my life better? The answer is no. But here's the real question. Will you surrender to the love of God in Jesus Christ? The Son of God who died for you and rose again. If you will, no promises is going to be comfortable and easy and safe. But the promise is he will make you new and give you eternal life. And for Christians... Who are, we, we still struggle with this surrender thing. It's, it's an everyday thing, right? It's not a one-time thing. And we still try to fit Jesus into the old way we did it. And Jesus is always uh, get, doing something new and fresh. So the Holy Spirit, I think for each of us, is probably calling us to completely leave behind some old ways of thinking and living so that we'll be open to something new. Here's the second thing I think it means for us. Really simple and practical Fasting and feasting both have a part to play in our spirituality. So everybody say fasting. Everybody say feasting. I gave you a lot of thoughts about that earlier. But as I mentioned, when you read through the book of Acts, we'll see that that early Christian community, they threw parties. They feasted because they knew they were already victors in Christ. And he was already with them. But they also spent time fasting and expressing their desperate dependence upon God and their longing for a future experience of the fullness of God's salvation. Now, we do need to be careful here because there's actually quite a lot of Bible passages that warn us that fasting can be something that gets out of whack easily. So here's the thing. These spiritual exercises do not make God love us. Okay. And God doesn't need our Bible reading. He doesn't need our prayer. He doesn't need our fasting. He needs he needs none of that. He's already self-sufficient and he already loves us. So who needs it? We need it. And why do we need it? We need it because it's hard for us to trust God's love. And it's hard for us to surrender to God's love. So we come to church and we read our Bibles and we pray. And if the Lord so leads, we might experience the spiritual disciplines of fasting or feasting, celebrating. We do these things at, to practice surrendering to God's love. Remember what we said earlier. Fasting anticipates future experience of God's victory, while feasting celebrates present experience of God's victory. But this is going to bring me now to the third and final thing that I think this means for us, which is the most important. More important than fasting and feasting is this. The Holy Spirit is inviting us to fix our eyes on Jesus and surrender completely to his love. Because he's the bridegroom. He's the one who is bringing the, the new covenant and who has established the new kingdom. Everybody say it's all about Jesus. And in this story, one of the problems is the Pharisees are tying themselves up in knots thinking about stuff like fasting and feasting when really they just need to look at Jesus. So if you leave here and don't think about what I said about fasting and feasting, but you're excited about Jesus and wanting to surrender to his love, that's a victory, church. That's where we want to be. Now, with those three things in mind, I want to invite you to stand and I want to invite the worship team to come back up and begin to play. 
We're about to respond to God's word with a time of singing. But before we sing, I want to just take a moment to be still in the presence of God. And ask him to speak to us in a personal and individual way. We read 1 John 4, 8 earlier, talking about God's love. Everybody say, God is love. And we really want to feast our minds on this reality. God is a powerful God. He's a holy God. He's a just God. But he's also a merciful and gracious God who loves you more than you could possibly imagine. And the invitation today is trust my love. The invitation is surrender to my love. I want to invite you to do what we sometimes do. Put your hand in a posture of receiving. And before we sing, would you just say, Holy Spirit. In your heart, you could pray this. I'm not saying the whole thing for you to repeat. Sorry, I made you repeat all sermon. In your heart, just pray, Holy Spirit, show me your love. And, and ask him to show you. Are there lies the devil has been telling you about God or about yourself that need to be replaced with the gospel of Jesus Christ? Ask him to show you if there's anything holding you back from just totally surrendering to his love. The death of Jesus is proof that there's no limit to how far God is willing to go to rescue you and his love. And his resurrection is proof that his love is powerful enough to make you new. So as we get ready to sing, here's my last prompt. Would you just pray in your heart, Holy Spirit, I surrender to the love of God. Holy Spirit, I release anything I'm holding on to. Holy Spirit, I trust the love of God today. Father, I pray for myself and for my church family. Even as we sing, would you be breaking chains, Lord? Even if we've known you for many years, it's easy for us to get trapped in these same lies and false ways of thinking that were so difficult for the Pharisees. And we cannot break our own chains. In fact, our whole point today is that only Jesus can break the chains. So we're crying on you to do a liberating work in our minds and our hearts. Help us to see how good you are. Free us to surrender to your love and to trust that love. I pray it now in the name of Jesus Christ, the Lord. Amen.